Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to Loved As You Are, an Ignatian podcast. With me, Gretchen Crowder. I'm so glad you're here. This week, we got up to 280 plays, and that number just continues to climb. I am so grateful for all who have tuned in so far and shared how the conversations with Colleen and Zach resonated with you. I know you are going to love this one too. My guest today is Reverend Jenny Smith. I first connected with Jenny through social media and through a mutual friend who will come on the podcast next, Christiane Squires. I immediately resonated with Jenny's writing and with her outlook on life, and I think you will as well. In a time when it's harder than ever to look reality in the eye, Reverend Jenny Smith offers people the courage to show up authentically to all of life's complexities. A writing pastor, Jenny recently published Still Here, a poetry memoir of grief and love, after the unexpected passing of her youngest brother. She writes The Thread, a weekly newsletter on untangling the stories that make us who we are so we can show up to our lives with spacious presence brave honesty, radical love, and wild curiosity. Jenny is a United Methodist pastor, having served churches in Alaska and Washington. She is headed to Oregon this summer to serve a collaboration of churches. As I was editing this conversation, it stuck out to me just how thoughtful and vulnerable Jenny was with what she shared. I am so grateful for her wisdom, and I'm excited to share that wisdom with you right now. So. Here we go. Hey, Jenny, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I'm so excited that you're on with me today and that we're going to talk about your ministry, your writing, all of those things that I think fit so well with this theme of being loved as you are. The other thing I really appreciate is having this conversation between me, who is steeped in Ignatian spirituality and in the Catholic faith, and then you as a minister in the Methodist faith and tradition, and in your own way of viewing that as well, to just be able to have those conversations and see how we each approach a topic in a different way. So welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I did tell people a little bit about you before we started, but can you tell us how you got into really the writing phase? Because I know you have been a United Methodist pastor for a while and you've started writing, I think, probably after that, though, of course, you probably wrote all the talks yet you delivered before then. How did you get into the writing Yeah, back in 2018, I went on a four-week renewal leave from serving in the local church and just took a little rest sabbatical space. And it was towards the end of that when I had a lot more quiet in my life that some new questions started to kind of shimmer. And one of them was around writing. I had always loved writing. I wrote for the high school newspaper and college newspaper and even won a couple of awards in high school and thought, this is so cool. And then shifted away from, I was going to be a music teacher and shifted instead into studying religion and became a religion major in college and then went to seminary for my master's. So I was doing writing all the time, writing every week, speaking every week, which was great practice. And then this 
Paul kind of shifted and morphed into in 2018. And so ever since then, I've been trying to learn how to hold it because it's so beautiful to me. It's what I want to do all the time. And yet, how does it fit into the ministry that was already existing? And so, yeah, it's always been this kind of balancing act. And in the last year or so, I have figured out some new relationships. So now I do describe myself as a writing pastor. Okay. And earlier on, I really thought, I really, my brain was super black and white and dualistic about it. I was like, I'm either a pastor or I'm a writer. There was nowhere in my brain that I could like put them together. Mm-hmm. And after a last year and a half, I've had off on a personal leave from the church. Only now have I now really deepened that identity. And now I'm like, I can't take them apart anymore. And so I'm getting ready to move into a new church uh, in mm-hmm. Oregon in a couple months in July. And it was so beautiful in my spirit when I told them, I'm a writing pastor. I do all the normal pastor things you expect, but I also pastor through writing. And I like Mm -hmm. can't not do that. And they're, of course, super supportive and curious to see what that will be like. So, yeah. I like how you are going to be pastor in Oregon, but your writing really takes you across the United States and elsewhere, wherever anybody is able to read it. And so it's this ministry that goes beyond the church walls, which I think is so wonderful. And then you can bring back that experience of encountering people outside of your church back into your church work as well. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how it evolves from here because I started my Substack. I've been blogging forever, kind of alongside what was considered typical church work. But during my break, during my leave, I really started my Substack as a way of filling that gap. And now I'm going to be holding both. So I'm very curious. Like I have people even financially invested in my Substack. How is this going to, how are they going to dance together? And I don't know yet, except that I hope to be deeply committed to both. (laughs) As a writer myself, I feel like my writing is always informed by my day job, by my family, by the things that I'm experiencing. And I understand them a little bit better when I'm writing. And then I understand them even better when people respond to that writing and give me insights that I didn't see initially. So I think they will be beautiful together. And the new congregation will maybe already know who you are a little bit if they've seen your writing out there. So. Yeah, that happened at my last church that I have two books out and they, I started to realize they had read the book before I arrived. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, you read. Oh, (laughs) so yeah, it's pretty weird. And you're like, I don't know your name yet, but you know so much about me. This is yeah. unbelievable. I was quickly flipping through in my mind what each chapter was about. And I was like, oh my gosh, they already know this and this and that. And so, yeah. When I talk to them next week, well, they have already heard this story because right. I wrote about it. Yeah. 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 Well, I think one of the the questions I wanted to ask you at the beginning, because I'm always interested in hearing this from a variety of people, is who is God to you and how did you come to that understanding? Such a beautiful and big question. (laughs) I guess I should say you never arrive at an understanding, but you know, how have you arrived at what your current understanding is? But obviously it's always changing. Yeah, I I'm really grateful to have grown up in a family that labels are not always helpful, but for this conversation, they were not particularly super conservative and rigid. Um, As I came to know in other chapters, being exposed to other traditions and people and strains of special Christianity, like then I saw the depth and the diversity of how we all view this story but I always grew up like God is love and everybody's in and everybody's welcome and like I didn't have to deconstruct that part there's plenty of other things around the church that didn't quite make sense to me at different times that I've had to untangle and wrestle with but God has always for me been a pretty safe space to be in Um, I will say until about a year and a half ago, Mm -hmm. I, I wrestled with my faith earlier on, but again, I never questioned the core, core presence. For me, 
spirit. Um, I often refer to God for me as spirit. And so that Holy Spirit part of the Trinity has always been very that sustaining daily presence, the presence of God in that leaf that is shaking in the wind and in animals and nature and in water and in people that my like very sensitive empath eyes just always picked up on reading people's energy and feeling like the spirit is at work in people and in creation that's always come very naturally and intuitively to me so I'm grateful for that but about a year and a half ago my youngest brother a year and three months ago my youngest brother unexpectedly passed away right after three weeks after I went on this personal leave and so and as for everyone, the pandemic was just terrible on so many levels. So, I mean, all of us, right, have been forced into this moment where some things fall apart we thought might never fall apart. Mm-hmm. You know, we're kind of sitting here with all these pieces going, what the do I do with this? Mm-hmm. And yet we're all isolated and trying to heal ourselves with all this trauma. So for me, there were definitely a few life situations that invited me into a space where I realized I was actually really, really angry with God. And I think it's it was really hard for me, not just as a pastor, but as a human who had always felt so close to the spirit and energy in the world. And yet I had very real anger that I needed to feel. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard to put myself in spaces where I could just kind of suspend and be like, God, I know everything's going to be okay. And I know you love me. And I know all the good theology. And also, can you just hang tight for a second? Because I need to rage at you mm-hmm. about some things that should not be okay in my world. Mm-hmm. And so that's been that's been hard. Um, I'm I'm an Enneagram one, and so all of us ones, I think, struggle with even knowing we're angry, let alone feeling it. So that's been the big spiritual work: is to truly make space and permission and grace to rage at God. And once I was able to start doing that more honestly, then I felt, okay, okay, like we can evolve God to a deeper level of our relationship now. So that's the space I'm in right now. I'm going back to the church and and I'm still angry a little bit. And I'm just trying to kind of hold all of that together. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. One of the things in Ignatian spirituality that I really love is we talk about finding God in all things. So your first part Mm -hmm. of your explanation of finding God in a leaf, finding God in other people, finding God in animals and nature, that's very key to what Ignatian spirituality is about and what St. Ignatius taught. But one of the other things I really love that I learned in Ignatian spirituality is that God wants you to show up real asking for what you want, asking for what you need, even if you don't exactly know what that is, right? Mm -hmm. And that if God is in all things, then God's in the anger that we feel too. God's present in that. God's, God's there in that with us. And so ignoring it or not saying anything about it, when God already knows that's what you're feeling, is not developing that relationship, right? So I know I've felt guilty in the past. My real honest prayer with God sometimes is like, I don't know what you're doing right now. I don't understand. I don't like the decisions you're making for me in my life or the decisions you're not making. And I used to feel guilty for that, that real honest conversation. But then I also think God knew that's what I wanted to say anyway. And if I wasn't saying it, then I was putting up a barrier. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of my story is that I am neurodivergent and I did not realize this until within the last year. And so even the, I'm someone who always thought I was pretty deeply self-aware and yet just still continue to pull apart the layers and say, oh, I didn't even know that I could be upset about this thing because I didn't even know the way my brain was wired that I was upset. So it's just been fascinating to continue to kind of peel back the onion and then at the same time for that relationship with spirit to continue to deepen. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. When I think about the title of this podcast and and calling it loved as you are, one of the things that is so important and I've been doing a lot of work myself in the last few years on what is the you are part? who am I? How can I be loved as I am if I don't know who I am? If I don't know all the parts of me? Because God already knows them, but I still need to figure some of that out. So it's really 
interesting to think of dividing that phrase up to say we are loved as, but we need to figure out who we are so that then we can we can feel that love because you can't really feel that love when you don't know yeah. don't know who you are, right? Yeah, so good. And I think you did a lot of that work when you were looking at this idea of the palms up life and, and what that meant and, and how you started that. What what was that for you? Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what palms up is and, and where it came from? Back when I finished seminary and was going up to start pastoring two churches in Anchorage, Alaska, I uh, met Dr. Elaine Heath. And she was teaching one weekend on this contemplative stance and had four sections to it. And it immediately captured my attention. My heart just kind of woke up and said, oh, amazing. You know, the intellectual things of leading churches and being the spiritual guide with folks. But what about this more heart space? And so over time, I had engaged with Bob Goff's book, Love Does, and he tells this great story about being palms up and how he invites, he's a lawyer, and he invites his people when they're in a meeting and they're getting nervous to open their hands under the table, palms up. And he said, it's impossible to get defensive when your hands are open. And I just thought, what a beautiful, somatic, embodied way, which we all know you through meditation, through everything, that when we open our hands, hands and our heart we are just in this much more receptive nourished space and so I just put those together and said called those four things palms up and so the four steps are to show up to pay attention to cooperate with God and to release the outcome and it has been it just started out as like a little sermon series 10 or 15 years ago in Alaska and a good preacher knows a good concept when they see one, like, and there just continued to be all of this resonance with people. And so, for, yeah, for the last 10, 15 years, it's just been something I share with people wherever I travel. And it has been such a fruitful way. It, you can put it into place in almost any situation of life, daily or over discernment issues. I have found it incredibly helpful as churches are doing vision work. As families are trying to figure things out, it has been such a gift. So I'm grateful to keep passing it along so people can make it their own. <laughs> How did those four steps, particularly releasing the outcome, did that play any role in how you've kind of dealt with the last year or so? Or was it more challenging to look at these series of four steps when it came to something more personal? Great question. I've found but those steps were incredibly helpful back in 2016 first. And then I just kind of memorized this rhythm with each life circumstance that came my way. And it got, it's almost like my muscle around showing up now just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So in 2016, I've always been a pretty anxious person, but anxiety just continued to kind of spin out of control. And I was starting to get panic attacks when I was preaching. And that is, such a jarring experience to be up in front of your people and talking about grace and love and the goodness of God. And yet your body, your nervous system is having such an opposing experience. And I had been kind of putting it off. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then finally, I think it was right around the presidential election that was really hard for so many of us to navigate. And the stress and pressure in the church was extremely high. And I'm like, I have to deal with this. So showing up to that was, for me, one of my biggest first, like, this is my life. And if I don't show up to this, no. Like, it was kind of that realization that no one was really coming to save me from this. Yeah. And that I wasn't going to pray it away. Mm -hmm. I had to really get after it. And so, yeah, then when it came time, you know, my brother, we get the call that he's in ICU. At that point, the palms up rhythm was just wrote memory in my cells, in my DNA. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, here we go. This is not at all what I wanted to show up to. But it's like I didn't even have to argue with God or with myself at that point. I'm like, well, here we go. I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> yeah. 
there's two words in Ignatian spirituality called consolation and desolation. So consolation is that time when everything's good and things are kind of moving along and you have a good rhythm and you feel close to God. And it sounds like when you started Palms Up Life, you were kind of in that, that consolation space. And then desolation is, of course, the exact opposite. You feel distant from God. You feel disconnected from people. You feel like things are really difficult. And what Ignatius always said was, don't make decisions when you are in desolation, but instead you make decisions and you prepare for the desolation in consolation. And so it sounds like when you learn the Palms Up Life and you prepared that and you, and you practiced it so many times in a time of, of consolation and in a time of hope and a time where things were kind of working well, that it was there for you in the more desolate moments. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing to consider that I don't consider enough is how do I prepare myself for the hard moments. I tend to just dive right into the hard moments without expecting it and don't really prepare myself at all. So I, I like that idea of how can I pre prepare myself for these things. That's a beautiful way to look at that, right? And I didn't know consciously at all that that's what was happening, but it was. when. You get those phone calls and life is totally flipped upside down. There's no time to now study up on well, which framework is going to help me navigate. <laughs> yes. Which like, book can I read? Which yes. book can I now read so I know what's about? No, you're getting on airplanes and you're sitting in hospitals and you're making phone calls and you're doing the thing. And so you're totally right. What are the practices and things that we are embodying now? So then we're, you know, it, it really did help. It truly helped. I was able. When everything was upside down, there was there were some handholds because because I knew it was going to truly be okay. We got the call, and my other brother was in Italy, and he immediately I was on the phone with him, and I go, "Hey, no matter what happens, we are going to be okay." Mm -hmm. And it was I was so sure of it. Now, part of me was probably already like anxiously trying to control the outcome and be like, "Hey, no matter what, it's going to be okay." <laughs> but also, I truly believed. The worst could be about to happen. And mm -hmm. still, this Palms Up Life reminds me that we will still be alive. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine, especially in circumstances like that, when you are the minister of the family, you're the one that has the experience of dealing with that with other families within your congregation, how it works then when you're a member of the family and you're still in this role? Is it difficult to kind of balance those two two things out where you want to serve other people, but you also need to be served yourself? Yeah, it was a really interesting season. My dad is also a United Methodist pastor. And oh, so okay. So you got two of them. In the we got a few voices in the family that, that know their way around these things. I would say, honestly, we at the church that we were going to, or that was our home church in Alaska, there were four pastors that ended up eulogizing my brother. Oh, wow. All good friends of the family, good friends of Jeremy's. And so in those seasons, we had pastors that really came and loved us and walked with us. And as much as I could, I tried to be sister, but it was, it was challenging. There's, I'm a teacher. There's a teacher in me that wants to start, you know, teaching all the concepts and, oh, look at this. And this could be used to illustrate this. And it's like, Jenny, you need to go cry on the couch and be a grieving <laughs> sister right now. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Well, that Enneagram one also makes you want to be the one to take control of the situation. I, I know that well myself. Yeah. So. yeah. so I know you have two books out and, and please talk about the first one as well. But I know your second book just came out a little while ago, which is your poetry memoir of grief. And I know you've shared some of those poems on social media and just there's such a real honesty and vulnerability and openness about mm -hmm. your poetry, especially because it's very much just like the words we think, but put down on paper, right? And giving people permission to to say those words. But would you tell us a little bit of either book, both books, where they came from? Yeah, the first one was pretty wild. I wrote it to the church I was leaving because we were leaving in June of 2020 during the pandemic. And as you can imagine from the story around anxiety, I had done tremendous work and tremendous healing in that season. And it, I was just heartbroken to walk out the door and not have really had closure and gotten to say goodbye there. So I remember 
but plus it was the pandemic. So there wasn't much to do except pack up my house and try to figure out how to have like a second grader on zoom at home. And <laughs> so I just pulled a bunch of my writings and essays and poems and put them into a book and put it on Amazon to self publish. And that was such an interesting experience. Launched it like June 1st and then was out the door to the new church that I was getting moved to. So that was a really fascinating experience that, you know, your first book, it's just always this weird experience where you're like, oh gosh, you look back at it and you're like, oh, can I please redo that entire thing? (laughs) And yet it's definitely a snapshot of what life was like then. Mm -hmm. The second one I had was also just so interesting because I started tapping out poems on my phone within a day or two of getting the call about my brother. And I remember later thinking, this is a weird way to handle this. Like, mm-hmm. I kind of looked at myself, I'm like, why do I have words right now to talk about this? So, I mean, I was even shaming myself in my grief mm-hmm. for grieving the wrong way, right? And one of my friends said, Jenny, you just went through a lot of private grief that you couldn't really talk about in the church. Mm-hmm. Now someone dying was like socially acceptable grief. Yes. So in some ways I was crying. I had been grieving and now I could finally talk about grief. And yeah, it was about my brother, but it was about some other stuff too. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I was frozen, whenever I was disassociating, whenever I was stuck, I would sit down and tap out five or six lines and the tears would flow and I felt like I was alive again. And I wrote them in poems and or in out on walks and the school pickup line crying in bed like it was just such a cathartic healing year mm-hmm. and I did get to the fall and I realized oh, I think this is a book there's like 200 poems here this is ridiculous um so I still have plenty I wrote that didn't even go in the book mm-hmm. so yeah it ended up being just kind of this journey through the first year which I put them in linear order in the book for the most part and I almost hated to do that because I didn't you know we're all looking for that linear like formula to solve yes please tell me what to do on day 12 and then day 24 yes yes please promise me by day 365 this will be over but yet I think it also showed that we do genuinely there's no formula but I think we do move from shock Mm -hmm. into whatever is next and then we do slowly learn how to integrate and take that person's love with us or or we don't and we do stay really stuck in some other kind of place And so, um, yeah, it's been wild. I released it on my brother's one-year death anniversary, which was a terrible idea. I'll never do that again. I was like, why are you doing this to yourself? And so just tried to give myself a lot of space around that launch. But, yeah, it's been incredibly received. I sent copies out to my reading team, and like 50 or 60 people read it beforehand, and their feedback just floored me. Other things I've written for other people, this I did not write. For anyone else. Yeah. This was only for me to survive the first year. And then I was like, oh, yeah, duh, that's when we're most honest. Yeah. That's the best stuff that actually meets other people where it hurts. Yeah. So it's, it's been wild and hard and good. <laughs> well, and by putting your poetry out there that you're experiencing in real time gives people the ability to be who they are in their own grieving moments. And just show up and know there's not one way to grieve. Because I like at the beginning of this, you said a socially acceptable thing to grieve about or even a socially acceptable way to grieve or a right way to approach something. There isn't. I mean, so many so many stories we've heard of people laughing in the, in the worst moments of grief or not reacting as they should have reacted. But we're all individuals that take that trauma in and experience it as we're going to experience it. It really gives us the permission to be who we are in that moment. And then hopefully to learn that we're loved because we're showing up as who we are, right? And we're not trying to be someone else or be better or the best griever ever or the best family member ever, but we're just trying to be ourselves. Yeah, I got to this place as I was wrapping up the book where I realized but there was still a part of me that was writing the book so that I could save my brother again. Mm-hmm. And that was a really terrible day when I realized that that book was going to be done. 
person is still going to be dead. Mm-hmm. And so it's fascinating to watch how our brains can just kind of do their little games inside and the ways we think like, hey God, I'm going to earn some safety and love with you because look, I'm grieving well. Look, I'm writing. I mean, look, God, I published a book helping others grieve. You should be bringing my brother back to me. Yeah. And so that was a that was a hard week in January when I realized none of that stuff apparently was going to happen. And I, like, he was still gone. Yeah, we don't even realize when we're doing it, right? When we're trying to um, earn points or change the course or outcome, make ourselves or someone else into who we want them to be instead of who they are. I interviewed someone yesterday that he said, even make God into who we want God to be. And I was like, yeah, we definitely do that. Yeah. Especially when we're having conversations with God, like, you really need to do this for me now. And I don't like what you did for me yesterday. And trying to mold God into who we think God is instead of allow for the mystery that we Mm. won't fully understand. Sharing your writing, sharing your poetry, or even your ministry, how does that help you recognize not only your own belovedness, but the belovedness of all those that you encounter? Like Mm -hmm. first your family, of course, the people closest to you, and then others that you encounter in your work. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating. I've always been someone who's pretty deeply wired to be watching the people around me seeing where love is at. When I was 10 or 11, my dad and I would be on long road trips in Alaska between Sedotna and Anchorage. And the game that we would play, the dad is a pastor and me is someone who like liked church, he, we would practice the children's sermons together. And one of his was, the kingdom of God is like. And you would point to anything and then on the spot make the connection. That that game was so easy for my brain. I could see the patterns and connect everything. And be like, oh, the kingdom of God is like that rock, or like that whale, or like that eagle, or that melon. And so that always was pretty intuitive to me as as growing up, as a young person and now as an adult. So I see the movement of spirit in my kids all the time, in my family all the time. It's like what I see when I look at people. So yeah, as a writer, it was just so fun to bring that to life. And it was interesting, right? In the seasons where I'm frustrated with someone I love, it's almost so annoying that I can also see as a writer and as a very spiritually grounded person that there was also this like movement of God in them. And then as a writer, to be able to describe that, it helped me fall in love with them again in a new way. I'm still working on, honestly, receiving the love, the nourishing love of God through other people back to me. Mm-hmm. I think especially as an Enneagram one, like I try really hard to make sure the work I do is not performative. I think it sometimes is really challenging. So so I am in a season where when someone says something kind and gracious to me, I really try to slow down and hear them and let that like really nourish me instead of what I used to do all the time was, okay, cool, cool. That is now pressure and expectation to keep showing you I'm worthy. So lifelong things I hear, but um, I'm working on that one more. Yeah, I think the tendency, too, is always to brush by the compliments and hone in on the constructive criticism. This one thing went wrong, and I know everyone's telling me that it went well, but I heard this one you know, one thing that said it was wrong, and I need to fix this. Either I said it or somebody else said it, and that's what I got to fix for the next time. And so I brushed by all the compliments. In this false sense of humility right like we're, we're taught to be humble we're taught to be have a sense of humility in all we do and to really want to serve others but because of that stance that we have we forget that we also are capable of receiving love and that isn't the opposite of humility you know for someone to tell us of our goodness and affirm who we are is not going to make us less less humble or enhance our ego it's just something that we need to be welcome to receive yeah that really shifted for me in the fall of 2020 
And again, pandemic, it just kind of was this reckoning point for so many of us and different things. For me, it was when I started to wake up and pay attention to my body Mm -hmm. and all of the ways that I was not really living in body with purpose. And I was working on a book with Sarah Blondin. She wrote Heart Minded. She's an incredible meditator and teacher and writer. And she just really helped walk in that book, helped me walk through what does it mean to truly love me? Mm. I have seen so much fruit in the last three years from that one season where now I'm like, oh, oh no, yeah, I'm definitely worthy of this. Like, I am. But most of it, the switch was is because I just learned how to love me. Where before, right? I had been definitely looking for that everywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that idea that taking care of ourselves or taking breaks when we need it or taking time for ourselves is actually something that celebrates who we are. And it's so important, not only for ourselves and our own health, spiritual health, as well as physical health, but also for those around us to see as well especially when your kids see that you take that time to really care for yourself, then that gives them permission to do it earlier in life than maybe we have, right? Right. Yeah, just today, a couple hours ago, I was getting ready to move into this new job, and I looked at my calendar, and the number of commitments that were starting to get put on the calendar were like making me a little itchy. There was like, because I'm coming out of leave, I've been doing plenty, but not full-time work, and I started to feel my old stuff kick in. And I was like, hold up, hold up. The only thing today you're doing is having a conversation with Gretchen. It's really okay. And I literally like laid down and took a nap for an hour just to show myself, my body. Mm-hmm. But like we, this rushing around, doing all the things is like not actually how we heal anything. And so it is a long unwiring, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of what loving other people comes down to is not only knowing who we are, loving ourselves as we are, but also in some cases putting ourselves first so that we can serve other people. St. Ignatius, when he first converted and and had his experience of, of coming to love God, he was really harsh on himself. He had a lot of harsh penitential practices. Everything was going to be like really, really severe for him. And then he learned from that. That's not really what God was asking of him. And so when he taught his men how to serve other people, he said, you have to take care of yourself first. Because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't serve other people. So there's got to be a balance. Yeah. I'm so, uh, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia when I was 17. And so I also had to learn really early on, like, burnout was real. And this yeah. wasn't bodies were not always going to hold up to a certain level of ignoring them so that we could fulfill whatever we thought we needed and so yep i'm with you i think this is the work of our lives i love there's so many voices especially women of color who are just leading Mm -hmm. us so well in this area and i'm so grateful for how their voice is like hey rest and play is how we heal the whole thing yeah i just love it (laughs) yeah and the more that we tune in and listen and read different voices and um, have conversations like this and people listen to conversations like this, the more we'll start to internalize that and understand it because real change takes time, but it won't happen if we don't do it little by little. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, so when we're trying to help ourselves or others recognize their belovedness, is there any challenge to that, particularly in today's world that you see helping other people, helping yourself uh, understand your belovedness? Yeah, I think I'm raising kids right now who are going into, or they're in second and fifth grade. And I definitely think, I mean, I am, it's fresh on my mind our relationship to technology. More than ever, it's connecting us. Mm-hmm. We can learn and grow and do all the things. And more than ever, it seems to be harming us. And I'm very mindful, especially of our young people who are given access to social media long before their brain and heart are ready to handle them. So I think that's one space where 
I think it's really challenging. I mean, I can't imagine being a teenager was already hard enough. When I think back to the 90s for me, I cannot imagine looking at my peers and their pictures on social media every day and trying to understand I am a beloved child. Mm -hmm. Constantly would be comparing myself to everyone's highlight reel on social media. I mean, it's hard enough for me and I'm 40. Like, this is nuts. So, so I think technology is, makes that challenging. I think all of us are holding an incredible amount of trauma and pain that we have not had the consciousness and awareness to, to handle. And I'm really grateful for all the, to me, what seems like a trend towards an acceptance of therapy and acceptance of all the different ways we heal. So I'm really grateful for these generations that are doing that work. I think that's only going to get better. But for me, that's been a big reason why you know, people can hear I'm a beloved child of God and it sounds nice. But just because someone said it, that doesn't break down 20 years of trauma that's stuck in your nervous system. Um, Right? So I think for me, that's where the healing work has really been. Is I've explored a ton of different modalities of physical and emotional and mental healing. And I love weaving those threads into the life of Jesus. And what it means to to be a beloved child of God through those lenses. Yeah, and I think it's so important when we talk about spiritual health that we don't talk about it in absence of all the other ones, right? So mental health, physical health, emotional health, spiritual health, all of them are necessary to be in balance. And all of them require different modalities to be able to keep them in balance too. So we can't just lean heavily in one direction, nor do I think that's what God is asking of us, right? Because God gave us all these gifts and talents to learn about those different things so that then to share that wisdom with other people and to be able to help other people in all those ways. So um, to really live a balanced life and love who you are, you have to be thinking about all of those things. You know, how am I feeling physically? How is my emotions doing? What was my mental health like? And not be afraid to explore them, which I really love and resonate with your story about just learning about your own neurodivergence and kind of exploring what that looks like. I know my own kids and family have gone through that in the last couple years as we learned about learning differences in ADHD and the hereditary nature of ADHD and where all of that comes from. You just get to know yourself so much better sometimes when you have kids. You look at them and they're little copies of you and you're like, oh, oh, I understand so much better about that now because I can see it right being played out right yep. in front of me. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I think I am fascinated by what the church will continue to learn from the neurodivergent community. I mean, think about it, right? For anyone who's on the spectrum, anyone ADHD, wherever you fall in that neurodivergent world, most of the way that we were taught to function was to mask and to cover all of that up. Mm-hmm. So then that's in direct conflict with the belovedness of God identity that we would be hoping to embody. And so where where's the church's work to specifically say to the neurodivergent community, like, we're going to create space here where we hope you don't have to mask. Mm-hmm. Where all the things that make up who you are, but they don't always fit into the rest of what neurotypical world has decided is real and true. We understand that about you here, and we're going to do some of the work to, to get more educated and understand. And then I think, goodness gracious, the gospel of Jesus has a far better chance at becoming real for that group that has been marginalized especially in our country. Yeah, I think there's some incredible work there that can keep being intentionally done. Yeah, I always think that uh, education, you know, we looked for the right place for my kids to learn how to read, kind of learn about themselves and get into a better better state of learning, you know, because it was serving their individual needs. So we think about that a lot in education and in the classroom. And so then we have to extend that into our churches and say, are we reaching everybody with the way that we worship, with the way that we do faith formation, with the way that we, I don't know, do social events in our, in our church? Is this serving 
everybody that is there and and are they still there because maybe maybe they're not still there and that's why we think we're serving everybody because those that that aren't quite fitting in don't come and so how do we how do we figure out new ways of proceeding that that welcome everybody in while still keeping you know in line with what what we believe and who we are and but what we believe in who we are is that everyone has dignity and everybody has worth and everybody is loved as they are. So really, I think the time that we've had over the last four years of slowing down and thinking about it and experiencing something all at the same time has given us a great opportunity to now think about how to do things in new and different ways. Yeah, I agree. I A lot of my work around grief in the last six months has been traveling around to different churches and facilitating conversations on just this. To say, hey, everyone would love to pretend the pandemic is over and we're just in a new normal go. And what if we instead slow down even more again and look back at the last three or four years? So where is our where are our bodies individually and collectively holding grief? Mm-hmm. How are we talking about that? How are we integrating some of that work? What fear are we still holding? Who are we now? We know who we were then, but who are we now? And that work has just been really powerful. People are just they're holding it right there below the surface. It feels mm-hmm. like no one really knows what to do with it. Well, sometimes you said earlier the right way socially acceptable thing to grieve about or the right way to grieve um, I think a lot of people are holding grief about things under the surface because it may not be because they lost a loved one and it may not be because they lost a job or it may not be something tangible that they can say hey here's this thing and this is what I'm sad about right now and you all can see it and understand it because if you had experienced that same thing then you'd be sad but there's all these other things as well that people are grieving that are hard to put out in front of people and say, this is, this is what this is. And you can understand it because if this happened to you, you'd feel the same way. Right. So more conversations that we have where it's like, we grieve different things and we're, we feel different ways about things and, and we have to be able to allow people to have their stories and allow people to have their, their truth, what it is and and be there and and be empathetic about it and, and talk about it with them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the number one thing I have found to be so healing is just helping folks remember and learn how to bear witness. Mm -hmm. In every workshop or conversation, we talk about the terrible things we've all heard around grief, especially around the loss of a loved one. But people just write, they're so uncomfortable by grief. I just want to make everyone feel better and say terrible theology and it just hurts everyone so much more. But what does it mean in any kind of grief, big or small, for us to be better listeners and to help people feel heard? And I just on Saturday we're doing this retreat and people are naming their different grief and someone will look at them with tears in their eyes and go, I'm with you. I believe you. I get it. And you could just see the person like unravel inside in such a healing way. There was nothing to fix. People just wanted someone to see that they were hurting and believing. Yeah. Oh, if we could all do that a little better. Yeah. First, but it takes the sharers, the willingness to be honest and vulnerable. That's mm-hmm. But then the listener, I don't know that we always think about how much healing power we have mm-hmm. when we're just listening to someone. Jay, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I know you have some kids to go go pick up, too. I was scrolling through your Instagram and, and saw this line from you that I really love, and, and I think it harkens back to the beginning of the conversation where you said where you are with your relationship with God right now, a year and three months after losing your brother. The line was, Grace whispers what's most true long before we're ready to hear it. Uh, I really love that line. There's been so many lines about grace I've I've encountered in the last couple years uh, that say, like, even if you're not ready to hear it, if, even if you're not ready to experience it, it's still there. It's just waiting for you. And I love that line, even though sometimes I'm like, well, if you're there, just like make yourself known. Could you just like right. be a bright light so I could like grab onto you? But but I loved that line and wanted to, to point it out. It's one of the many beautiful lines that you share um, on social media. Can you tell people where to find you? 
Yeah, Jenny Smith writes on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and the website. And my most favorite thing is our Substack. So if you just look up Jenny Smith on Substack, you can come find us there and we'll hang out on Thursdays. Yeah. Awesome. That's wonderful. And you moved this summer to Oregon, right? Yep. Moving from Seattle, Washington down to Salem, Oregon. So new adventures ahead. I love that. I love following your journey going from state to state. It's so interesting, but I'm sure it's stressful to be like, I'm going to pack up and go into a new house and see what what all this is about. My kids are in new schools. So um, wish you much luck and blessings with your move. And thank you for the conversation. And hopefully we can have another conversation in the future. Thank you so much. This was great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jenny as much as I did. I loved how she spoke of the different movements over time that her relationship with God has had. I really resonated with how her writing has helped her come to know herself and her relationship with God and others better. I know that writing helps me process things too, and so I felt that connection to her story. I also appreciated that she thoughtfully considered what her vocation was and added writing in front of pastor, recognizing that she can be called to both simultaneously. Information on how to follow Jenny Smith can be found in the show notes. These conversations are bringing me such life, and I can't wait to share even more of them with you. I think you'll notice that I'm trying to get a variety of perspectives and experiences on this podcast, including both Catholic and non-Catholic, Ignatian and other forms of spiritual practice as well. If you think you or someone you know has a story to share on this podcast, please email me at lovedasyouarepod at gmail.com. And if you like this podcast, subscribe and leave a review. I'd love to have your feedback and be able to continue to move this podcast in a direction that is valuable for you. You can also follow everything related to this podcast at lovedasyouarepod on Instagram and at gretchencrowder.com slash lovedasyouarepodcast. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you for joining me today. And until next time, remember to be who you are, because that's exactly who God wants you to be.